Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. My dear friends, you might think that after a 31, going on 32-year friendship, speaking together all over the city, serving alongside each other on all kinds of task forces for community benefit, you would think that hearing the Reverend Dr. G. Scott Morris would be routine for me. Nothing could be farther from the truth, which says so much about Scott, his relationship to our congregation, and our own relationship to church health and him, which is still growing after 26 years when we began the mystic on the first Tuesdays of each month at Crosstown Concourse with Scott Morris and Reverend Joshua Narciss. So when COVID hit three years ago this March, it was the Reverend Dr. Morris who convened bishops and the heads of major houses of worship and faith traditions across all lines, Muslims, Christians, Jews. Our citywide COVID-19 task force did important life-saving things because we were unexpectedly forced to focus on this relationship between faith and health. But as Scott asks in his new book, intended largely for churches, but for all people of faith, wanting to know how we can respond to our broken healthcare system, the stories alone of the patients captivated me. The question he asks is whether we're willing to take what we learned from the COVID crisis and create a new response to the pain and suffering in our community and world. He writes, And I quote, we have shown that we can coalesce around a tragedy, but can we carry on with what we have learned when things are normal again? What makes my brother Scott not only a great preacher and speaker, but also a fabulous writer is his storytelling, including in this book, his story about a four foot 10 temple member named Sil Marks, who some of you may remember from the Goldsmiths. Just last week at our mystic broadcast, Scott told about some of the 10,000 Hurricane Katrina victims from New Orleans who took refuge in Memphis and needed medical attention and the ethical dilemma he faced and what he decided to do. So this latest book chronicles how prescription drugs in the U.S. are more than two and a half times higher than the 31 other Western countries, leading to his question of many In what ways does your personal faith as a Jew, as a Christian, as a Muslim, as whatever, in what way does your personal faith inform your thoughts about justice and equity in relation to the inaccessibility to affordable medications for all? He shows and shares how one inner city neighborhood and suburban neighborhood in New Orleans that are just a few miles apart, literally a few miles apart, have a 25-year difference in life 
expectancy. 25 years, even though the two neighborhoods are only miles apart. I don't wanna keep quoting the book, you can read it, but he says just a few more. Where people are born, where they grow up, where they work, the education they get, how they earn a living, whether they have supportive social faith networks, how far is it to a doctor or hospital or pharmacy, whether the stores in the neighborhood carry fresh food or only processed food, whether housing is maintained in safe condition and is affordable, these are the social determinants of health, and these are not conditions any individual can solve on their own, but challenges that call us to work together. So that's why he's here tonight. No city, I know there are a lot of visiting relatives in Miami, Charleston, coast to coast. I'm not exaggerating. No city in America has what I refer to as the most Jewish place I know, even if it was established as the Church Health Center, hundreds of temple doctors, nurses, and volunteers over the past 35 years have worked there. The quiet benefactor of this entire temple campus was the same benefactor of Scott's dream. Healing the whole person, body and spirit, is what the priests in the Torah Lizzie will chant from tomorrow did, and what Dr. Morris does and writes about. Thank God Scott Morris chose Memphis over 35 years ago to start what is now the largest faith-based clinic in the country, a model for cities and communities across America. Lifting the title of one of Scott's book chapters, I view Scott and all of you here from church health as an echo of God's love. So please show your love for a person who is truly an honorary member of Temple Israel for Life, Dr. Scott Morris. Whoa, Michael, what, I mean, what am I supposed to say after that? <laughs> so look, uh, Micah and my wife, Mary, and Cheryl, we have been a lot of places together. We've been to Israel twice. Um, Mary and I still support, which we learned from Micah. I'm sure I don't say it right. Yad Lakishish. I mean, we love that place. I'm sure a lot of y'all have been there and loved it too. Um, you've been there too, the Miami people? It, uh, perfect. It's great. So, um, yeah, um, the, the link between church and health and, and temple is very deep. I'm going to talk about that uh, in, a, in, a, in a deep way. Um, Marcy Wurzberg Stagner, if you, everybody knows her here, I think. I mean, you didn't know she now works with us. Uh, she has a big job with us. Let Marcy explain to you what her job is. Um, and then as he's talked about from the Goldsmiths to the Bronsteins to the Orgles, the, the, the roll call is very deep. Um, I feel that I am at home here, but... I do not in any way, shape, or form take it for granted the opportunity to stand here. You know, I am keenly aware that Wednesday and Thursday was the 84th anniversary of Crystal Night. And for somebody like me who claims to be Christian, you know, it is on me and people who believe the way I do to make sure that never again could anything like that happen. Um, it is 
unforgettable, unbelievable that it, that it did, but it is on us, and I assure you that I am committed. Now, um, I do think that election week, uh, where the, we've been told the future of democracy has been at stake, um, is the perfect week for, you know, the Torah section for this week and, you know, Liza, for you tomorrow as you read, um, you know, that this Torah section will include the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where it was not possible for Abraham to find 10 righteous men. Now, had he been looking for 10 righteous women, maybe it would have turned out differently. But look, I am here to be inspirational. So talking about the election is off limits. So instead, let's delve into the question, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? That, that will be uplifting, won't it? All right, so I am a United Methodist. Now, I, I'm sure many of you get a little confused about in the Christian world how denominations work. There are the Catholics and then there are Protestants and below that, you know, I'm a Methodist, Joshua's a Presbyterian, there are Episcopalians, there's all these other things, it makes no sense. Um, but in my denomination, um, it is currently completely imploding. Uh, primarily built around the issue of believing that Sodom and Gomorrah, and by association, um, we will have the same fate as Methodist unless we do what Christ Methodist has just done, which is leave the denomination. This is all because we believe, or some believe, that the issues of same-sex relationships will drive us to Sodom and Gomorrah's fate. Now, mind you, that issue is never actually addressed in Genesis. It, it is not brought up in any way, shape, or form. The prophet Ezekiel does make it clear why they were destroyed. And here's what he says. This was the guilt of your system, sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. That's why it was destroyed. So, so here is what I know, and that pointing out what I just said at Temple Israel most of you are going, well, of course, which is why I have always felt at home here, um, part of this congregation, and, and Michael, the, to say that I am, and Mary and I are, are members for life, I mean, we embrace that. Um, and it's why I'm so grateful to be here tonight. But here's what I also know. Um, even though I have so many friends in this room, many of you don't really know my story or the story of church health and how it came to be. So I want to tell a little bit about that and how we are bound to Temple Israel. So 
indulge me. I, I grew up in Atlanta, and growing up in Atlanta, I was always interested in being engaged in faith in a professional way, um, but I didn't want to preach 52 sermons a year. I have no idea how you do that. Um, the thought of it just sends shivers down my spine. But even as a teenager, I, I read the Bible, and I saw this stuff in there about healing the sick. You know, in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures, it is everywhere. You know, we're expected to care for our bodies as well as our spirits and to care for the poor when they're sick. That's what we're expected to do. You know, all over this uh, country, we have built hospitals that have church names on them or, or Mount Sinai or Beth Israel. And yet, they have almost nothing to do with worshiping congregations. You know, as a teenager, it seemed to me that there ought to be more to it than that. So I set out to, to figure out how that would work in my own life. It was either that or pitch for the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> now, M Micah and I have, for most of our relationship up until the pandemic, every year gone to at least a couple of baseball games between the Braves and the Cincinnati Reds. Um, we would alternate, and here's the part of this he would really me not tell. So we would leave Memphis. He would be dressed just like he is right now, the upright rabbi looking very uh, whatever. So um, we would then get off the plane in either Atlanta or Cincinnati, and he would, um, this took me by surprise the first time this happened, but he uh, goes to the bathroom and he comes out looking like a Cincinnati Reds lunatic. I mean, he's, he got it all on there, but, and he loved that. And it was fun. It was fun. And I'm sorry we don't do that anymore. Um, but I digress. Uh, so here, I spend most of my time when I get to seminary uh, looking at what our faith communities have historically done. And, and come to realize that there's a reason these hospitals have the names they do. We, we just forgot. You know, we, we can't explain what, why they're there. We have come to see our bodies as not something that people of faith should care about. You know, our, our bodies are things that science and medicine should care about and that our congregations should only focus on things of the spirit without realizing that separating body and spirit is a fundamentally non-Christian and non-Jewish idea. You know, in Genesis, God breathes the breath of life, the ruach, into the dust of the earth. And it is only when we are dust and breath that we are fully human. You know, you have to care for our bodies as well as our spirits. And as, unfortunately, Sodom and Gomorrah learned too late, you must also care for the poor especially when they get sick. So with that, I finally figure out that this is my life. I'm uh, actually in the chaplain's office at the Yale Medical School, and I look on his desk, and there's a little pamphlet that says how to start a church-based health clinic. And I go, that's it. That's what I want to do. So I finish seminary, medical school. I do a residency to be a family doctor. That's what I am. I'm ready to start my own church-based health clinic. I want to stay in the South. I don't want to go back to Atlanta. And then, not making this up, I read somewhere that Memphis is the poorest major city in America. 
And based on that, I say I'm going to Memphis. You know, I did not know one soul. I was 33 years old. I was too young, too dumb to realize that what I wanted to do had no chance to succeed. So I come to Memphis totally selling out of an empty cart. I'm going to start something called the Church Health Center. It's going to have a cross on its logo, and it's going to be led by a Methodist minister. So I went to the most obvious place for funding, a Jewish family foundation. <laughs> it was the Plow Foundation that gave the first dollars to start church health. Now, here's the part that's sort of fun. So uh, Jocelyn Rudner and I end up ultimately forming a relationship with each other that neither one of us can live up to. But here's how it starts. So I go and... You know, somebody introduces me to Jocelyn, hopefully a blessed memory. I, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people who feel almost as strong as I do about her. But um, I, I pitched to her my idea, and then ultimately they come back to fund it. But here's the part I didn't know. So Jocelyn takes it to her family member, who many of y'all know, Dr. John Eisenberg, one of the great doctors ever in America. You know, at this point, John is the director of ARC, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. I mean, you don't get much higher than John was in the doctor world. And so Jocelyn takes it to John and goes, well, what do you think about this idea? You know, it's going to be based on doctors volunteering their time. They're only going to see people who are working in a low-wage job, and they're not going to take government funding. What do you think about this? And John goes, that sounds like a nutty idea. It has no chance to succeed, but I don't know. It's your money. Why don't you give them a try? I thought I got a little more endorsement than that at the time. But as it turns out, before his death, John and I became very good friends. But that is how we get started. And uh, from that, I now have to figure out how to really live into what church health is all about, which is engaging congregations. You know, church health is not about solving the great social problems in America. Believe it or not, we don't know how to do that. We're not actually trying to do that. What we're trying to do is to engage communities of faith, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, I don't care because we're all called to do the same thing, to figure out how do we care for our bodies and how do we care for the poor when they have nowhere else to turn? So, one of the first congregations I come to was, I don't know, Temple Israel. So I come knocking on the door and meet Harry Danziger. Is Harry here? Are you here? No, not here. Sorry. Uh, no, sorry. Okay. Anyway, so I, I wish he was here because he probably could correct if I'm wrong. But no, I'm telling you the truth. I go here and I meet Harry for the very first time, I tell him my plan. We have not opened our door. Harry listens as only Harry can do with his great wisdom. And then he turns around in his chair and pulls out a little uh, deck of note cards, which in it is a checkbook that has the rabbi's discretionary fund in it. And he writes me on the spot a check for $5,000, the, the first dollars that church health ever got from any congregation. I'm not making this up, y'all. 
Um, we need doctors to volunteer. I, I meet Dave Scharfman, who introduces me to other people in his congregation, including Lee Schwartzberg. And we recruit not every, but a lot of the Jewish doctors in this Memphis from day one. This is how church health has always worked. But I know you're asking, so why does church health have to exist? You know, isn't this what the government is supposed to do? You know, wasn't the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, designed to solve this problem? Well, the answer is yes, sort of. Not really, but sort of. Um, and the problem is, is that the Affordable Care Act has two arms to it. One, it's all built around the expansion of Medicaid. Now, I'm not going to go into this. It's boring. But if you want to talk about it afterwards, I'll talk, stay here all night long. But um, ultimately, the Supreme Court decides every state can decide if we're going to expand Medicaid. You know, Tennessee goes, we don't want the government's money. $1.5 billion a year, actually, of your tax money, we say we would rather that money go to take care of poor people in New York, California, and Chicago. You are not getting your tax money back, but we are giving it away rather than use it on our own poor people. I'm not making this up. I know this sounds crazy, but that's the reality of it. Now, the other piece, healthcare.gov. You know, they're, they're running ads on uh, TV right now saying that during open enrollment, which is happening now, if you're poor and you qualify, you can go to healthcare.gov and you can buy health insurance for as little as $10 a month. That's a great deal, isn't it? Here's what they don't tell you, is that if your income is below, not above, below, 138% of the poverty level. So what does that mean? All right, so Church Health currently takes care of 80,000 people in Memphis. It's a real number. You know, we take care of the people who work to make our lives comfortable. They cook our food, take care of our children, wash our dishes, cut our grass. Well, one day dig your grave, literally. I know that. They don't complain. Yet when they get sick, their options are very few. 90% of them of our patients, their income is below that level, 138% of the poverty level. So when they go to healthcare.gov, you know what it says to them? It, sa it says that you should apply for your state's expanded Medicaid program. Wait a minute, Tennessee didn't expand Medicaid. You know, what I just told you, and I know you think I didn't say it right, or you weren't listening, or you're ready for me to be done and get out of here, what I just explained to you is the poorest people get nothing, nothing. You know, that, that's the world we're in right now. This is why church health exists, and it's why we're not going away. Look, you want to know more about this stuff, read this book. And Michael's right. It's mostly written for Christian congregations because that's who I need to pony up the money to do this work. Although y'all are very helpful in helping us in so many ways, so thank you. <laughs> and then there's the issue of dental care. So in 2,800 pages of the Affordable Care Act, the words adult dentistry does not appear. It is not in there. You know, dentistry is an economic issue. You can't go from a minimum wage job to a better job. If your teeth are all messed up, it's not gonna happen. 
And then there are other ways that it just breaks your heart. So I see this woman who comes to our, our walk-in clinic. That, that's what I do. And the criteria to come to our walk-in clinic is I am sick today. I don't have health insurance. The cost is $40. It's the same no matter what your problem is. You've got a cold. You've got a broken bone. You're at death's doorstep. It's obviously a better deal the sicker you are. But for 40 bucks. <laughs> It's a pretty good deal no matter what. So I'm seeing this woman who's Latino, Mary, Maria. Um, she comes because she has an abscessed tooth. That is a relatively easy thing to do. But while I'm getting her ready to go see our dentist, um, Mario is eight years old. She, she had brought him because she didn't know we had interpreters and thought her eight-year-old son might have to interpret for me. So I'm trying to play with him, and he just sort of in the corner doesn't want to do this, and he's talking like this with his hand up. And so, and Mario, let me look at you. I open his mouth. He's only eight years old. Literally every tooth in his mouth was like destroyed for a lot of reasons, mostly over the fact they didn't have enough money to feed him other than with cheap food. So I go, look, we're going to get your mouth taken care of, but we're also going to get his. So Mario, turns out, got a big personality. He ends up seeing our dentist, and there are four quadrants in your mouth. So they fix two quadrants, but, you know, getting an eight-year-old to want to see it, sit in a dentist chair, not such an easy thing, you know, but our dentists have the magic hands, they're able to do it. And then trying to talk Mario into, let's do the third quadrant. And he now pulls back and goes, mm, I don't know. I don't think we're going to do that. No, 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 Mario, we need to fix your... No, no we're not going to do that. But Mario, why are we not going to fix your mouth? You've been a great kid. He goes, well, my, my mom needs to save up a little more money in order to do that. Y'all, we don't charge hardly anything. An eight-year-old boy should not have to worry about whether his mom has enough money for him to go to the dentist. This is America. That should never happen. That is immoral. This is something we ought to care deeply about, and it's something we work on every day. And then there is this issue of immigration. More than half of the patients we see these days speak Spanish, um, although it's not just uh, Latino immigrants. I mean, one day my first 11 patients spoke 11 different languages. This is Memphis. This is not New York. But um, on Monday, on Monday, I was absolutely brought to bear this passage that I believe every Jew knows in the heart of hearts from Deuteronomy. A wandering Aramean was my father. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien few in number, and there he became a great nation. On Monday, I saw a 42-year-old man who complained that he had pain in his heart. Well, I mean, he's talking through an interpreter. You know, he's undocumented, not sure. You know, I, he had been in a car accident two months before. And that, that happens. You can get hit in your chest, and it just takes forever to heal up. Um, but there was something not right. And so I pressed more about the accident. And as it turns out, in the accident, his two-year-old son 
was killed. So he actually said it right, right? He had pain in his heart, and I don't have any pills for that. You know, so he immediately saw one of our Spanish-speaking counselors. We're not going to fix him overnight, but we're going to deal with the real issues. And then, Liza, your Torah passage tomorrow, it's all about Abraham and Sarah. Uh, there are fascinating parts of that. You know, the binding of Isaac is in there. Abraham is called multiple times in this passage. Go home and read it. Genesis 18 through 21. And at every turn where Abraham is called, he responds, here am I. Here am I. You know, yes, the Torah section is rich. And over, over again, Abraham responds to God's call with here, I, here am I. So the work of church health is not about providing quality health care with technology and drugs, although we do do that. It is about standing in the breach, about listening to God's call to each of us, for all of us together to answer, here am I, as humble as I can be, with only the resources I am able to muster, but with the full weight of Torah at my back to answer unequivocally, here am I. Thanks for having me.